You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. The late Dr. Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now simply referred to as Crew, told this story about a famous oil field called Yates Pool. During the Depression, this field was a sheep ranch owned by a gentleman by the name of Yates. Mr. Yates wasn't able to make enough money with his ranching operation to pay the mortgage. And so he was in danger of losing so much. With little money toward food and and clothes for he and his family, like many others around them, they relied on government subsidy. Day after day, as he grazed his sheep on those rolling hills in West Texas, there was no doubt that he was greatly disturbed about, well, how am I going to pay the next bill? Then one day, a seismographic crew from an oil company came into the area and told him that there may be oil in your land. They asked permission to drill a, well, a wildcat well. He signed the lease. At 1,115 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were found on his property, some with twice as much. In fact, 30 years after the discovery, a government test, one of those wells still had the potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day. And Mr. Yates owned it all. The day he purchased that land, he owned the oil and mineral rights, yet he had been living on subsidy. He was a multi-millionaire living in poverty. The problem, he didn't know the oil was there, even though it was his. This story illustrates for me that many Christians, though we have salvation through Jesus Christ, are all living in spiritual poverty because we haven't begun to live into the power and presence of what God has in store for us. It's as if we are living in the land of Christianity, but we're only on the surface. And deep down in the depths of our soul, God has resources available to us that we have not begun to tap. Two weeks ago, we talked about God's promise and desire to be with us, that from cover to cover, the Bible talks about the fact that God has taken steps and continues to take steps to be in a relationship with you and with me. And then last week, we looked at our choice to be with Him, that He doesn't push us toward that. He doesn't push a relationship with Him on us He leaves it up up to you and me to decide whether or not we want to be with Him. After that decision is made, how do we move toward living in God's riches instead of spiritual poverty? Remember, the premise of these seven weeks together is that we want to know God more closely. We want a relationship with Him. So we've got to go to the Bible. Do you know one of the most amazing verses in the Bible is John 16, 7. It's when Jesus tells his disciples 
He's actually not going to be moving closer to them. He's going to be moving away from them. Just for a moment, imagine the shock of the disciples. Put yourself in their place, if you will. Your life has been turned upside down by this man. For three years, you've been captivated by his every word. You lived to hear him teach, to watch him heal, to see him perform out of his love. You left everything to follow him, convinced that he holds the key to the future of the human race, and now he says he's going to leave? Your world is shaken. You've sacrificed everything for him, and now he says he's going to leave. But then Jesus has the audacity to add to that in this same verse. He says, it is for your good that I am going away. We say, sure. Just like a parent says to a child before they spank them, this is going to hurt, but it's for your own good. But Jesus is quite serious, and he gives us the reason why it's a good thing that he leaves. He says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Think about that for a moment. That's a staggering statement. You often think... Man, I'd give anything to have lived during the time that Jesus did. To hear his voice, see his face, watch him perform miracles. And Jesus says, no. It is better to live in the age of the Spirit than to walk with me on the earth. Jesus is saying that we are more fortunate than the disciples were, that you and I have an advantage over those folks who actually walked with him. Well, since Jesus says it, it must be true. So doesn't it make sense that to be as close to God as we want, we had better thoroughly know and lean on the person of the Holy Spirit? Shouldn't we be crystal clear as to His identity and ministry? Otherwise, we're in for disaster. In the Bible, an image Jesus uses of the Spirit in our life is like a river. Take a look with me at John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37. Jesus is about to say, John sets this up, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water flow from within them. John's comment then is, by this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Now, that phrase we just saw in verse 38, rivers of living water will flow from within, is literally in the Greek, out of his belly shall flow living water. Belly, meaning your innermost being. That place that gets all tied up in knots when you're anxious, when you're afraid, when you're angry, when you're unsatisfied, when you're unhappy. You may be able to manage your face. You may be able to make it look confident when inside you're dying. 
You may fool people by forcing your body language to look relaxed when underneath you're in amazing stress. You see, your belly, though, is not fooled. It's your inner core. It's where every major emotion gets registered. It's where you carry the real truth about weakness and and strength as you face life. And Jesus is basically saying, if you follow me, right down in your gut, in your belly, you will be flowing with energy, hope, love, peace. Did you notice in verse 39 when it talked about the flowing water, what that stands for? It's the Holy Spirit. This means that the new kind of life that we are to go toward happens with the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, for a large portion of its geography, Israel is a desert. The audience to whom Jesus is speaking didn't always have a view of a river. What they saw were wadis. A wadi is a dry riverbed, and they run throughout the the sand. In rainstorms, though, they would get filled with water again. So for the people Jesus was teaching in Israel, a flowing river translates to life. The Bible uses the images of rivers and streams to depict spiritual reality. That there is this flow of God's presence and power that gives life. For an example, in Jeremiah 17, we read this. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. Never fails to bear fruit. We see it again in the very last chapter of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 22, John describes this picture. When the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. From the opening verses of Genesis to the closing chapter of Revelation, God creates, redeems, And recreates a world that is to be full of life. That what he creates and offers is life that flows like the power and purity of a river. Jesus said that he came to fill you so full of life that if someone were to ask you, how are you doing? You would answer, I'm living the most complete, filled up, God-centered, peaceful, empowered life you can imagine. I wonder how many of us would actually say that. Well, let's look at exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Over the years, I've noticed something quite interesting. In some churches... The only thing they say about Jesus is how he'll get you into heaven after you die. 
They don't elaborate much about life with Jesus here on this side of heaven. It's almost a a fatalistic, foregone conclusion that all we do is muddle through life on this earth, and then we get to the end, we die, and Jesus takes us to heaven. Yet when you read the Gospels, Jesus almost never talks about getting people into heaven. Jesus talks about getting people into life. Yes, there is life beyond the grave, but it starts here. Who does the thief represent in that passage from John 10.10? The evil one, Satan. And this is how he operates. Many people hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They're overwhelmed by this invitation of hope. And they say, yes, I want Jesus in my life. And for a little while, it's kind of like a honeymoon period. They are drawn toward Scripture in a new way. They get excited and want to tell everybody about Jesus. They love to worship things about their life change for the positive. Maybe their language gets cleaned up. Their their addictions are overcome, and they, they involve themselves in serving in the church. But over time, this process of change can just kind of stall. And instead of my life looking like this amazing picture of, of a follower of Jesus Christ, it looks more like this. I yell at my children. I worry too much about money and my job. I'm jealous of people who are more successful or attractive than me, as if. I use deception to get out of trouble. I pass judgment on people. And then I read in the New Testament where we're supposed to put off the old life and be given a new life in Christ. And I'm not jumping with joy at the change because instead of feeling inspired, I'm discouraged and confused and tired. I get overwhelmed with all the stuff I'm supposed to do. And so I'm stuck in this gap between what I'm supposed to be as a Christian and how I'm actually living and feeling. Any of you ever felt that way? You know what people do when they're not closing that gap? These are real strategies. A lot of people just try harder. They think, okay, the problem with this gap in my life is because I'm not being heroic enough in my efforts. So they decide, I'm going to get up earlier, pray longer, read another book, listen to more podcasts, learn a new spiritual discipline, uh, serve more, work harder to be nice to my family. Then you hear about somebody who's getting up at 4 a.m. to pray and read Scripture, and you start to feel guilty. So you resolve, I'm going to do that too, even though you're not a morning person. Even though at 4 a.m., you're dazed and confused and groggy and grumpy, and nobody wants to be with you, not even Jesus at 4 a.m. But you say to yourself, this is hard and miserable and exhausting. It's got to be spiritual. You do your absolute best to keep it up. And maybe it lasts for days, weeks, maybe months. But you can't sustain it. And when you stop, you feel guilty. So you want to start something new, something else that might change all that. Well, let me tell you a secret that you already are aware of deep in your heart. You just don't want to admit you're tired Not just physically tired, you're weary in your soul. Does that 
describe you, then you're one of those to whom Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But those are confusing words to you right now. Because for you, coming to Jesus is exhausting. But he wants to close the gap. He wants you to experience rivers of water, the Holy Spirit flowing through you, and trying harder just isn't cutting it. So other people go to a different strategy. They simply pretend. They aren't closing the gap either between who they're supposed to be as a Christian and who they really are. They know they're supposed to be feeling different, and so they decide, I'll just fake it until I make it. And when you talk to them, their life is a miracle a minute. They uh, get every answer to their prayer. Every decision is a word from God. Every sentence ends, ends with, praise the Lord. But those who are really pretending inside, when it's quiet and they're all alone, that gap is still there. So, number three, still others try to close the gap by rededication. One of the places you especially see this in some churches is in their youth groups. One pastor described his teenage years in church like this. He said, we'd be sitting around a campfire, and the speaker would tell some real emotional story, and he'd say, last year, there were a group of teenagers who were driving home from this very camp, and they died. And every year, it was the same story. He said, by the end of high school, you wondered how there were any kids to go to camp because it seemed like they were all dying on their way home. Rededicating, meaning just going through the motions, you know, time after time after time doesn't necessarily close the gap. So some try a fourth strategy. I'm going to call it switching spiritual venues. Church hopping is another way to say it. You've seen this dozens of times. And maybe it's along the lines of, you know, somebody grows up in a non-charismatic church and thinks, well, maybe if I go to a charismatic church, there's a different approach to healing and prayer and worship, and maybe that'll help close the gap. Or someone grows up in a charismatic church and they think, yeah, those are so experience-oriented and maybe just not cutting it for me. It's a little bit shallow for me. So I want to go someplace where there's a deeper theology. So maybe it's a church that takes a different approach about teaching or evangelism or the sacraments or social action. And you think, if I just go to that church, that'll help close the gap. All that is is a giant game of musical pews. And then there's a fifth strategy. Some people just give up. They don't try to close the gap any longer. They've tried all the supposed solutions and feel completely discouraged or hopeless. So inwardly, they just admit to themselves, this just isn't going to happen. This different way of life is really not possible. So they'll remain a Christian. 
They may even continue coming to church, trying to be active. They hope that when they die, they'll go to heaven. But they decide that there's not much that can be done about that gap in their lives, so secretly they just give up. And some of you have. But what if there is another way? What if Jesus were right? What if it is possible for you to become increasingly alive with love and joy and peace, and it's not by trying harder? What if the Spirit of God is like a river flowing in you and through you all the time? What if your job is to try harder, run faster, get up earlier? What if your job is to simply jump in the river? Your job is to figure out how to stay in the flow. How do I not do those things that cut me off from the Spirit? How do I keep myself aware and committed so that rivers of living water are running through my belly? How do I learn to flow with the Spirit? Let's take a look at John 16, starting at verse 12, where Jesus teaches about some of the various roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will, only, he will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that He will receive what He will make known to you, All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said that the Spirit will receive from me what He will make known to you. First of all, the Holy Spirit is the funnel through which God's resources come into our lives. You see, the Christian life is a life lived in the Spirit In one of the passages we looked at earlier from John 16, 7, where Jesus says, I'm going to go away from you. He used, a word, he used the word advocate. And the word for advocate, underneath that is a Greek word, paraclete, that comes from two Greek words that simply mean to come alongside another person and stand by them. That's what the paraclete is, the advocate. One who comes alongside and stands by besides the gospel of John, that word paraclete, advocate, is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's also from John in a shorter letter called 1 John, where he writes this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. This one who comes alongside and stands with us, who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. What this means is that we no longer have to fear judgment of God because Jesus literally stands next to us and in effect says, on the basis of the cross, this one is mine. On the basis of the cross, this one is innocent. 
this one belongs to me. Take a look at another passage. Jesus is talking with his disciples and he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He says, I'll send another advocate. Well, who's the first one? It's Jesus. And he tells his friends he won't leave them as orphans. They will not be doing life on their own. In fact, he gives them an amazing promise through the Spirit. He says, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit of the Almighty God lives inside you. He takes up residence in your life. So let me ask you. If you had the ideal trusted friend who would come alongside of you, wouldn't that be a tremendous thing? For example, you would know that you were accepted. With this trusted friend who would always stand alongside of you, you could say anything and they would listen. They would never run away. They would never reject you. They would never laugh at you. As you spent time with them, healing and change would begin to take place It would yield perfect wisdom in your life. You would find yourself filled with insight and clarity, guided toward truth, and able to make decisions that bring positive consequences. All of that is from the Spirit. Listen again to this from 1 John. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. Does that mean we don't need pastors and sermons anymore? Some of you are getting excited. That means we don't have to pay a salary anymore? More of you are getting excited. But I'm here to tell you the answer to both of those is no. (laughs) A resounding, emphatic no. The reason why John had to say that is because in that church, there were false teachers who were creating dissensions and fear. These false teachers claimed to have special authority based on superior knowledge of the Spirit. It's like saying, I know all about God. You don't. You got to listen to me. You got to take every word that I say to heart. And John is encouraging these Christians that he's writing to and to us today by basically saying, you all have the Spirit. Don't be like lost sheep. Don't be intimidated by those who claim superior spirituality. As much as anybody else, you have direct contact with the Holy Spirit. Another role that the Spirit plays in our lives is that of guiding us. When Jesus was teaching, he referred to the coming Holy Spirit and the Spirit's role of guiding by saying, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you 
let me illustrate this by telling you the story of a man named Scott. Scott had asked Christ into his life at a young age, but through the years, he drifted away from God and desired to control his own destiny, call the shots in his life, do whatever he wanted to do, regardless of the consequences. Well, by the time he was in his mid-30s, everything he held on to for security was just slipping through his fingers. As a result of back surgery, he could no longer work. His closest friend had died. He was about to lose his home. If there was a bottom to be hit, Scott felt he was about there. Full of despair, he got in his car and was driving around town asking God to show him what to do. He saw a sign that said, dead end. He says, well, that's how I feel. So he thought, you know, I'm just going to turn on that road. What's at the end of the dead end? He found a church. And even though it wasn't Sunday... He pulled into the parking lot, sat there for, you, for a little while in his car. He cried and he prayed. He had tried other churches throughout the years but never felt at home. But because of this prayer for guidance, he decided, what have I got to lose? I'll, I'll give this church a try next Sunday. He showed up and he continued to come week after week. And he found healing and hope through Jesus and that community of Christians that he longed for all of his life. What prompted Scott to turn on a dead-end road? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us insight into the truth. The Spirit gives us guidance. And the last one I'll talk about today, the Spirit gives us wisdom. Listen to this promise from the Bible found in the book of James. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. The Bible is quite clear that it is good to seek wisdom from wise, godly friends, family members. But wouldn't it make more sense to go first to the greatest counselor? So try this. This week, when you face a situation that needs wisdom, insight, guidance, whether it's a significant decision, a tough parenting situation, a relational challenge, a dilemma at work, a need for time management, first stop. Be still, even if it's at work. Take just a moment to quiet your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and insight, and then listen. The Spirit may bring Scripture to mind, and if that's the case, you will have insight Sometimes it's a nudge to make you go in the right direction, to make the right choice. He'll guide you, but you must listen. And then as you partner with the Holy Spirit through the course of each day, a greater dependence upon Him is a result. 
and you become more sensitized to his presence, it's as though he is flowing through you. No longer will you be seeking to close that gap by trying harder, pretending, switching, or even giving up. You will discover the fullness of life that Jesus promised will be yours and that God is indeed closer than you think. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.